Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Creative Kindergarten Podcast. My name is Amanda, and I'm an early childhood educator in Ontario, Canada, and this podcast is a place where I talk about all things kindergarten. I pick a topic for the week, and I share my thoughts, my ideas, my learning around that topic. For this week's podcast episode, I have another amazing guest joining me. Veronica from Madame Doyle over on Instagram is here to talk about neuroscience and busting some neuro myths. She is a wealth of information about neuroscience and about how children, you know, learn and how brains work. And it was just such a great invigorating conversation that got me even more excited to learn about how the brain works and she gives some amazing resources she gives some amazing insight and i really hope that you go and follow her over on her instagram uh she shares some fantastic resources uh that she has like acquired through getting her master's degree and working with some amazing people in the neuroscience in the neuroscience realm. Anyways, I'm just going to let you listen to this fantastic conversation. So thank you so much to Veronica for joining me, me for this week's episode of the Creative Kindergarten Podcast. Welcome back to the Creative Kindergarten Podcast. I'm so excited to have Veronica. She's Madame Doyle over on Instagram. She's here to talk to us about busting some neuromyths. And I'm really excited to have you on today. Welcome, Veronica. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here as well. Yeah, when you said neuroscience and like busting neuromyths, I was like, oh my goodness, this is like the best like podcast episode topic because I sometimes do talk about like the neuroscience behind like children learning. And then I always say like, I'm not an expert. This is just something that I've read. And so that we get to talk about it is really exciting to me. I like, I, I really, I'm excited to talk about this topic. Yeah, same here. <laughs> I'm I'm obsessed with it. So <laughs> do you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself before we jump into this week's episode? Sure. Um, So I was uh, born and raised in Montreal, but I call Alberta home now and have been here since 2007. Um, I am an educator, so I'm starting my 13th year of teaching, uh, primarily French French immersion. um, But this year, I'm actually starting a new role. I'm going to be an assistant principal at a French immersion English uh, middle school. So I'm excited for that new opportunity. Congratulations. That's really exciting. Yeah, thank you. And um, my obsession with neuroscience started, I would say, probably five years ago. And I just completed my master's of education in teaching, learning and neuroscience through the University of Lethbridge. Wow, that's really awesome. Um, Funny connections is that I also grew up near Montreal. And it was around, I would say, 2007 that we moved to Ontario. I can't remember exactly when, but it would it, like the same almost timeline as as me. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Did you grow up in Montreal, Montreal, or on in the south yeah. of Montreal? Well, yeah, on the island. So Ville Saint Laurent yeah. would be okay. where I actually. That's grew where up. my grandmother had her house for years and years, and so I spent a lot of time in Saint Laurent. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> we're gonna start busting some neuro myths, and so these are neuroscience things that as educators 
I just want to clarify before we jump into it. As educators, we believe are true, but may not be actually based in the science of neuroscience. Correct. Yeah. So we define neuromyths as misconceptions about brain research um, and their application to teaching and learning. And just a, a fun fact that I learned through my uh, education is that teachers who know more about the brain are more likely to spread neuromyths and misconceptions. So it doesn't mean because you know more about the brain that you're more equipped to bust neuromyths. And that was proven with one of my classes. We actually took, it's a quiz of like 32, the most common 32 neuromyths. And we took it as a cohort of 20. And I would say most of us scored like half wrong, even though we had been in the program for a year and a half. So I think it's a really good starting point just to be aware of some of the major ones. I won't talk about all of them today because that's way too many, but kind of the major ones that have like a huge impact on teaching and learning. So now that scares me because I talk about my non-knowledge of neuroscience all the time on this podcast. So I'm sure I'm about to be caught in like some neuromyths that I truly believe. So I'm terrified, but also very excited to be able to learn a little bit more about neuroscience and like bust some of these myths. So let's jump right into it. Do you have a list that we can go through? Yeah. So I kind of have three topics and like I've put neuromyths in them. And I know in Ontario, it's a big topic, actually, I think around North America right now, reading mm -hmm. and reading language acquisition and learning how to read is a huge topic right now with what's going on in research and how um, teachers are teaching reading and so on and so forth. So the first myth I wanted to bust is a common sign of dyslexia is seeing letters backwards. Yep. So a lot of people um, believe that that is true, whereas it's actually false. Mm -hmm. So um, dyslexia is a lack of phonological awareness. It is not a lack of only seeing letters backwards. And I think this is like a huge neural myth that we need to bust because it has a great impact on our students. Um, and I was guilty of doing it early on in my career. Um, if a student didn't reverse letters, I thought they were fine. And, you know, they'll get they'll get their reading when in reality they were probably um, suffering, not suffering, but they were probably lacking in phonological awareness, which led to them struggling with learning to read. Um, I think another thing to mention uh, regarding the brain is that our brain, when we're born as humans, our brain is wired to hear sound and understand sound and is wired to uh, talk. So our connections in our brain are made for that. Our brain has not evolved yet to be wired to read. So when we are learning to read, we are we actually have to build those connections in our brain. So that is why reading is so much harder than learning how to talk and like understanding what someone is doing, because we literally have to build those pathways um, in our brain because they're not there. Like they are there for listening and comprehension and for talking. Yeah. The way it was explained to me 
and again, bust me all you like, if these are misconceptions, this is great. But um, speaking and comprehension are natural processes. This is like natural processes that, like you said, we're born with, whereas reading and writing is a man-made process. We've taken that oral language skill and now used symbols to symbolize this. And that's something that like as a society we have created and so yeah the building those synapses to be able to read and write like you have to start building those in the brain whereas like in utero kids can already start listening and hearing voices and start building those connections whereas that doesn't happen with reading and writing naturally we really do have to teach that process yeah, absolutely. That's exactly how it is. Yeah. And so you might, I'm not saying because you might not be a dyslexia expert. My understanding with dyslexia is that there's different kinds of dyslexia as well. Like there's different um, types of dyslexia that children, you can identify with children and adults also. But that, yeah, there's definitely not just like they read letters backwards or words backwards or mix up letters or something like that. There's a lot of different types of dyslexia and, and how that can present in children. Yeah, definitely. And I'm no expert on dyslexia. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely, that's not something that I've um, studied. But yes, it can present just like any learning disability, right? It just it presents differently. Um, but yeah, definitely the base root of dyslexia, though, is phonological awareness. And just to make sure the listeners have an understanding of what phonological awareness is, um, I worked with a speech language pathologist two years ago very closely, and I learned so much from her. They are amazing. Like speech, and are, I, I wish I could just have a speech and language pathologist sit next to me all day and just help me out because they are just amazing at what they do. It's just awesome. They are. Yeah. And how she explained phonological awareness to me, because I always got all of them confused, <laughs> is phonological awareness is what you do with when it comes to language with your eyes closed. So mm -hmm. that means hearing different sounds, hearing syllables, um, hearing sentences, words, that's all phonological awareness, but it all can be done and actually should be done with your eyes closed. If your eyes are open and you're looking at text to do it, it is no longer considered phonological awareness. Our speech and language pathologist in our school board called it a hearsay skill, not a see say skill. It's a hear one. Like you can hear the sound. So yeah, like your eyes are have to be closed. And those are the phonological awareness skills. Yeah, absolutely. And like when she explained it that way, I was like, okay, I will never forget that ever again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know there's so many, like you go through like phonological awareness, phonics, phoneme awareness. Like there's just so many of those words that you're just at when you when you first start learning about um these skills that students need to be able to read and write you're just overwhelmed with the amount of terms that you have to learn and have a quite a deep understanding of to be able to teach those skills yeah amazing yeah I definitely love that one and I also don't love that I don't know if it's the same in Alberta, but over here in Ontario, like we do not diagnose or even start assessing for dyslexia until the kids are in some older grades. And like by then, because again, it's not a natural process to read and write, I feel like we've missed the boat. <laughs> like when we start actually assessing and diagnosing dyslexia or any reading disability, we really do um, miss that prime time when this the, your brain is like ready to use uh, to to learn those skills, and so having a strong phonological awareness program is 
you know, so good for especially those students, but it's like that good for one, good for all model. Like it's not just going to help those students that might be diagnosed later with, you know, a dyslexia, but it's, it's like imperative for so many of our students to have those skills because they won't get, they won't get diagnosed in time is unfortunately the, the, the scenario that's happening right now. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of similar here in Alberta. Grade three is usually when they start doing psychoed assessments. Um, So yes, the beauty of the brain though, is that the brain, you know, can learn anything at any age. Um, So although it, it, it is harder as you get older, um, it is still possible. So, um, so that's the beauty of our marvelous brain, uh, but definitely, and I think, um, I think one way kind of like you mentioned is we need to go back to, sorry, making sure that the basics are learned and spending time on those basics and the phonological awareness. And we're so quick to want the kids to look at text and read the sounds in text, but I'm always, I'm a big, big advocate of no, like let's put the text away and let's make sure that they have their basic skills. And, you know, a prime example is I was teaching grade five this year and I had struggling readers, uh, varying degrees of struggling readers, but with a few of them, I did a phonological awareness assessment And some of them were still in grade five, lacking those basic phonological awarenesses. And when I started focusing on those with them, slowly the reading started to improve, right? So that's why like I preach to the choir, especially to my like kindergarten, grade one and grade two teacher friends, phonological awareness, spend your time on phonological awareness, please, please, please. It will benefits once they get to higher grades but the we need speech to and language that. pathologists at our school board have been like screaming this from the rooftops for years and you know they like I remember doing PD with a speech and language pathologist five six years ago where she was like we're doing phonological awareness and showing us like all the the different skills embedded in phonological awareness and I think back to it and I was so overwhelmed with it at the time and I did not put the uh, effort to continue my learning into that and it took a few years but yeah they they those speech and language pathologists have been like sounding the alarm on this for so many years and yeah it's I'm really glad it's finally you know changing in the in the education world as well yeah absolutely for the benefit of our future kiddos for sure, <laughs> yeah, for sure. amazing all right do you have another neuro myth to bust with us Yes. So these two are kind of lumped together. So one of the neuro myths is we only use 10% of our brain. So obviously that is false. Um, We use every single part of our brain. And when we do something, whether it's, you know, breathing, writing, um, remembering something, there are multiple parts of your brain that are being used at the same time to uh, create or do whatever you're wanting to do. Um, And then the other one that kind of goes together um, is some of us, you, uh, some of us are left brained and some of us are right brained. And this explains differences on how we learn. So again, that is false. Um, We are not right or left brained. We use both of our hemispheres of our brain to do everything. And some, um, some things happen in the left brain and cross 
to go to the right brain, like to the right brain and vice versa when we're doing something. But um, yeah, we use all of our brain. It It's not like, I know it was a, a myth or it was something, you know, oh, you're, you're artsy. So you're using that part of your brain more than the other part of your brain, or you're more of a mathematician. So you're using that part of your brain more than that part of your brain. Um, no, everybody uses all of their parts of their brains. Uh, some things come easier to some people than others, but we use our entire brain to do everything every day, all day. Yeah. Um, it always shocks me that they made like a whole Hollywood movie off of that. There wasn't there. Is it limitless? I'm trying to remember what movie it is where he like takes a pill so that he can start using a hundred percent of his brain. And I'm like, aren't we all using like why is this a whole Hollywood movie like we're using our brain here like if you're not if you're only using 10% of your brain you're, you're, there's going to be some problems like absolutely the basic mechanics of breathing and walking and everything that you need yeah. all of your brain to be able to just function on a daily basis so yeah that that one always that one always shocks me when I see it come up and it seems yeah, like probably. it doesn't help. Yeah, it doesn't help either that, you know, like you said, Hollywood is perpetuating this problem, right? Like, because people were all guilty of it, right? Oh, it's on TV, or it's in an article. So it's true, it must be true. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you're like, Oh, well, yeah, then I guess we only use part of our brain, not our whole brain. But no, we definitely our brains work very hard. <laughs> and yeah, I feel like the left brain, right brain really puts us in a box even like if you could put yourself into a box like I'm right brain so I'm only good at this whatever and I'm not I don't have any left brain so I'm not good at this but we also start seeing this our students within that realm as well even though it might not be you know something we're really trying to do we might be like oh this kid's really artsy but they're not great at math so they must be is that left brain (laughs) the the stereotypical left brain like they're really artsy and so it, it kind of starts seeping into how we view children as well. So we have to be really careful about how those neuroscience myths can kind of seep into our practice. Yeah, definitely. For sure. We've all been guilty of doing it, but yes. And then, you know, if we see kids a certain way, then they start seeing themselves mm-hmm. a certain way. And then that blocks them from um, practicing what they need to work on to get better at it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. They have the capabilities to do everything. And so we have to make sure that we're we're seeing them through that lens as well and not um, putting our lens onto them and, you know, shaping how they see themselves. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Awesome. Do you have another one to give us? I'm like, so, I'm these. Yeah. So now I actually, so these next three neuromyths are all combined um, and kind of work on the last neuromyth about being right-brained and left-brained. And this is the most pervasive neuromyth in education, and it's about learning styles. Mm -hmm. I'm excited Um, for this one. Yeah. So just a little bit of history. Um, So Howard Gardner is the researcher that came up with learning styles. And his original research um, was taken and by, you know, money-making businesses and twisted to pretty much share with people that um, everybody has a learning style and they can only learn in their learning style. And they 
they make made, hopefully made, not make anymore, but millions and millions of dollars on selling programs about learning styles and how to teach to a specific learning style and so on and so forth. And the, the original research wasn't about that, but that's just even to show how something can be taken that's research-based and twisted to fit a lens to sell products to an audience. So the, before you keep going, these learning styles, so that we we understand, it's like the the visual learner, the kinesthetic learner, um, the or uh, like oral language learner. Oral, yeah, oral yeah. and all, yeah. There, yeah, I think, so yeah, seven of them, I believe. I don't yeah, know I'm them. trying to remember because honestly, I'm gonna I'm thinking back to it because I'm an early childhood educator. I studied early childhood ed- uh, education. I'm pretty sure that was in my course, however many years, like 10 years ago that I did it. I'm thinking back and I'm so sure that guy named Gardner came up at some point and then we talked about like the seven different learning styles. So not only is it just like a myth within like education, just talking about it, but it's also part of programs and hopefully was part of programs. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know for a fact for the program that I am in and was in, um, it wasn't talked about in the way that, you know, you need to teach all of these modalities. Um, And like, if you have a group of, you know, um, kinesthetic learners, they can only learn by, you know, moving their body and you have to teach them that way and only that way. Um, But yes, it's like, I was shocked when I found out the billion millions of dollars that were put out um with his research but like twerking twisting it to fit a lens that these corporations wanted to sell a bunch of products in um we had like a big discussion with my cohort group about it because we were all pretty shocked about it because we had been sold um sold those things too right mm-hmm. um and it was very shocking to realize that that wasn't the original research and purpose of the research. Um, so yeah, it's, um, and you know, it's still, you hear it less and less, um, but it's still out there. So I figured it was a good neuromyth to bust. Um, so the first one is children have learning styles that are dominated by particular senses. So obviously it's false because we've been talking about this. Um, So there's no one learning style. Um, Learning happens by doing and the best learning happens when emotions are involved. Actually, Um, that's how our brain retains something. And that's why um, you hear sometimes, you know, if you do something like memory, if you think of memories, if you, you know, smell something, it'll bring back a memory. That's because it ha- it had a greater impact on you. Or um, if you, um, if you chew gum sometimes while you're studying or learning something, chewing gum the next time might help you remember what you were doing. Um, if you've had like big emotions reading a book, um, you'll remember that book or remember what the book was trying to teach you because emotions were involved. So it has a lot more to do with emotions than it has to do with um, learning styles. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really important point because even as an adult, I thought of myself as like, 
um, a visual learner all the time. And I was like, oh, I have to see it to be able to remember it. And as I've grown older, I'm like, no, that's not the only way I can learn. (laughs) I can learn in different ways. So it's a really good reminder for us as adults that, you know, um, there's for learning to occur. It's not just in one particular way for, you know, a particular child. There's lots of different ways to engage in learning with them. Yes. And um, I think we all have the ones that are strongest to us, right? So when you refer to yourself as a visual learner, that's probably the way you learn fastest Mm -hmm. and best, but you can learn any other way as well, right? But we always default, right? It's like we're survival. We always default to whatever is easiest. So um, although visual learning is probably easiest to you, you could still learn in a kinesthetic way or in an oral way, mm-hmm. right? It would just take a bit more effort because those, um, uh, like those circuits in your brain are not as strong as your visual because you probably use your visual more than you use your others, but you can always build on all of the other ways to learn. Yep. If that makes sense. No, no, it definitely does. It's like a self self fulfilling prophecy almost like I only think I can learn visually so I just keep doing it that way and then I don't strengthen the other ways that I can be a learner as well so it just it kind of just like perpetuates that in my brain over and over again (laughs) yeah yeah Jenna I don't know if you know of her but Jennifer Cates is um, a researcher out of British Columbia and she has um, she has done she's written a few books and one of her books is of course I'm not going to remember the title of the book but it incorporates the different ways of showing and learning which goes back to Howard Gardner, but it's not using it in, um, like you can only do it this way. What she, um, what she says, and I've done it in my classes that you have, uh, a learning style that is easiest to you. And then you have another one that is hardest. And what she says is that you need to focus on straightening all of them. So using sometimes using your, Um, strong one to help and then sometimes using the one that you uh, want to use um, to uh, make it better because we all know that practice right makes progress so if you keep practicing something you will see progress Um, and I think that's how we need to use the multiple intelligences is showing the kids that there's all these different ways you can do things Some of them will be easier for some and some of them will be harder, but we can need to continue um, building on all of them. For example, my strength is um, visual learner, definitely. And my um, healthy intelligence is what I call is the one I need to work on to straighten it more is uh, visual spatial. Mm. So picturing things, doing Lego, doing puzzles, I really struggle with. And it takes a lot more brain energy for me to do that than it does for me to, you know, look at text and read a text. Um, So she's, she's great um, for like looking into the multiple intelligences, but using them in um, the the way they were meant to be used, not the way we were um, told or, yeah, 
told to use by, you know, corporations that wanted to sell a bunch of programs and products. Um, I'm going to try to find that book that you're talking about, or maybe you'll be able to find it. And then we'll put a link in the show notes if anybody is interested in looking um, for that book. I've written it down so I don't forget because I tried to quickly look on Amazon, but there's a bunch of different things and I don't know which one it is. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to put it in the show notes for everybody. Yeah. I, I know that growing up, you often heard about like the different um, types of learners and you were kind of put into not a, not a whole, like you were kind of um, taught in a certain way. And I think it's, as an educator, you have to be aware of all of the different ways that we learn. And then you have to, you know, teach to all of those ways to be able to, you know, maximize your efforts in the classroom. Because if you're only teaching one certain way, it's not going to be the best way for all students to be able to learn. Yeah, definitely. Um, So I found it. So the book is called Teaching to Diversity, the three block model of universal design for learning. Awesome. it's yeah, Jennifer, I, I, it may be cats. So it's K-A-T-Z. Um, and the forward is by Faye Brownlee, which um, is also a researcher that's done a lot on um, diversity and stuff. She has two other books that I've also read and they're fantastic. So I recommend all three, but if you are a teacher teaching in a classroom, teaching to diversity is fantabulous. Awesome. Yeah. Um, okay. And then the second neuromyth that kind of goes with the, that one is individuals learn better when they receive information in their preferred learning styles. So we've kind of already talked about that. Obviously, that is a false statement. We've already talked about that, but that goes back to, you know, if you're a kinesthetic learner, you can only learn if you're moving your body. If you're a visual spatial learner, you can only move or learn, sorry, by doing things and building things. Um, that's false. Um, students, people learn best in multiple different ways. So we need to integrate all of those modalities into teaching, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to have the visual, the oral, uh, the moving, and it's not one or the other. It's all of them together so that um, the brain can learn best because repetition is what the brain needs and doing it in different ways engages different parts of the brain. So the more engaged brain you have, the more likelihood you are of remembering or learning something. Because you want to get those synapses going and like building those synapses in the brain, right? This is where it's coming from, like all of those different areas of the brain getting worked on and building those connections to move that information from just like, um, I forget what, what kind of memory it is, short-term memory? to move it to like the long-term system so that we can really remember the things that we're learning. You really want to keep building and doing that through repetition. And you're only doing it in one way and only highlighting one part of your brain. It's not going to move as easily um, to that long-term memory. Is is that where that's coming from? Yeah. Yeah. So it's you, there's, yeah. So there's working memory. That's That's like what I'm trying to remember. (laughs) Yeah. The then and now, like what's happening right now. And the working memory is kind of like uh, the metaphor that I like to use is like a desktop, right? So if your desktop is full of things, it's really hard to remember all of them. So we kind of with working memory and that's when, um, 
uh, we have uh, accommodations for students, right, is that we're removing some of those working memory things. So they don't have to keep everything in then and now, right? They have the jot notes they can look at. They have the visual schedule they can look at. So that's removing from the working memory. And then eventually it goes into short-term memory. Short-term memory is the learning part of it. And then through lots of repetition, um, and eventually it will go into long-term memory. Awesome. Yeah. Was there a third one? I think you said three for this one. I, I did, but I, it was the right and right brain and left brain okay. thing I did with um, the parts of the brain that we use. So those were kind of the big neuro myths I wanted to bust because I think they have the greatest impact on our students. Yeah. Uh, knowing them kind of gives us a one up in being conscious of when we're planning, when we're uh, assessing, when we're, you know, teaching to make sure that we're, you know, not doing those. <laughs> it's not just teacher input constantly of like, I'm going to talk about it, or I'm going to put up a picture of it or whatever it is. Like you're also involving, you know, body movement into these things. You're involving, different sensory experiences into it, like touching letters, let's say you're teaching letters, like touching letters with um, in sand or whatever it might be, so that you're involving those different senses, those different types of learning in your instruction throughout the day, so that all, all students are getting that, that, that uh, multiple input to be able to learn. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, sometimes there's place and time for direct instruction, you need to direct instruct sometimes, but there's also place for song, songs and stories and videos and dancing and small groups, right? They're all different ways, different modalities that you can ignite learning um, that will help your students remember what you're trying to teach them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just, and I feel like the play-based model of learning in Ontario, I don't know how it is in, um, Alberta, but in Ontario, we have a play-based inquiry lens model of learning in the classroom. And the play-based learning is great because you can incorporate like those different um, learning techniques throughout the whole entire classroom. But that explicit model seems to have been left behind a little bit when it, when the play, because everybody just heard play. So everybody's gonna, just going to learn through play. Whereas, no, you need to have the teacher-led model as well, and then connect in other types of learning through, you know, play experiences, through small group learning, through, you know, um, explorations, whatever it might be. So you're really using this information about how students learn to like build your day and build the learning experiences in your classroom. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Play is a whole other bucket of worms. Yeah. Um, we can have another conversation on that one other day. I have, um, I did a lot of research actually on play. I'm a big advocate for play in a K to 12 classroom. Um, and the way I am um, convincing or uh, having teachers in older grades be more open to it is instead of using the word play, because a lot of people uh, associate play with, um, with not learning in society play is, you know, is, um, it, it is not associated with learning. It's, you know, uh, yeah, I can't think of the word right now, but so I use, um, playfulness, Mm -hmm. So incorporating playfulness into the classroom and 
people are more open to um, to listen. So we can definitely have another conversation about that. <laughs> oh, learning through play is just a huge component. And so there's, and there's so many, it's like more of an art than it is a science. Like it, it takes some deep understanding of how students learn and how play can be incorporated into the classroom. And it's not just, here's a bunch of toys, have fun. And then like walk away from it. it, there, yeah. it there's a lot more to it than just that. And I think that, yeah, that could be a whole, that's not even a podcast episode. That's a whole series of <laughs> talks about how um, educators can use that in the classroom. And I love that you're advocating for it from K to 12, because here it's like, we have that model for our kindergarten classrooms, like our year one and year two kindergarten is a play-based learning model. And then they go to grade one and we're like, yay, go sit at a desk and listen to a teacher talk all day, right? Like there's like a disconnect between um, the grades and how and how can we continue to like bring that playfulness into the older grades um, so that that deep learning, those connections can keep being made in the brain for all of our students. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Yeah, and that's why I chose to dig into um, the word playfulness and um, I have um, the, the presentation I did, which I'll be presenting at our teachers convention this year, hopefully, is it goes from free play, which is kind of what you talked about, right? Here's a bunch of toys and stuff and just play. And then it goes all the way into um, um, <clears throat> like universal design and inquiries and all that. Those kind of things also bring playfulness into um, into a classroom and teachers don't necessarily realize that some of the things they're doing is considered play right in quotes play um, so it's kind of just opening their eyes to it so that they know that you know play is not just you know throwing a bunch of toys to a kid and being like go 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 have fun <laughs> that is a form of play but yeah. there is so many other um, forms of play. I've called it the four part playful pedagogy, which I just realized has playful in it. The four, like I've heard it called that where it's like almost like a continuum where it's like that free play where it's completely child led. They get to pick what they're playing with, how they play with it, which also, yes, I'm not saying that that's not important, but you also, it's also a spectrum all the way to a more teacher led model of like, here, we're going to practice a skill using a playful model as well. So it's like a, a spectrum that needs to be, that's why it's more of a art than it is a science because you, you need to incorporate all those different things into your classroom. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's the continuum of play. You go from free play to learning through games kind of, and you, yeah, go through a bunch of different uh, ways to play, which is bait, like child directed all the way to teacher directed. Yeah, right? exactly. So that continuum yeah. of making yeah. sure we have multiple opportunities. Again, like we don't want students learning skills just in one way. We want them to practice the skills that they need, either the social skills, the problem solving skills, the literacy skills, the math skills, all of those things. We want them practicing those skills in a multitude of ways so that they can, you know, have some deep learning taking place. And so as an educator, you know, thinking of those different things is really important. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, I think one thing it's it's not part of the neuro myths necessarily, but one thing to remember, and it could definitely be part of the neuro myth is for the longest time, we thought that like the zero to five 
age range was the be end end all when it came to learning anything, because it was this magical period that the brain just learned everything. And what research tells us now is that yes, the zero to five, there is a lot of firing and a lot of synapse growth going on in there. And then that same thing kind of happens in adolescence again, where it's like a big growth, but throughout our entire life, our brain is learning and it's what we call neuroplasticity. So you can learn something new at any age um, because of neuroplasticity. So if you encounter a child who, you know, doesn't know something and they're older, it's not like, oh, well, it's a lost cause. They, you know, they're, they're past their zero to five prime time. So I can't teach them. Um, it'll take a bit longer, but those connections in the brain are able to form um, because of this beautiful thing called neuroplasticity. And that's why in your 60s, you can learn something new because of neuroplasticity. So your brain is always molding and changing to the events and the environment you're putting it into. Um, you're making me think of the book. Oh my gosh, Jean Clinton, Love Builds Brains. Is that the, I'm thinking of the right one, I think. And she has, it's it's about how built, brains are built. And she talks so much about neuroplasticity in that book and how we can continuously learn. And yes, just because a kid didn't, is, might, you know, not have the phonological awareness skills at five doesn't mean that in grade three, four, and five, they can't access those skills. But if we as kindergarten educators can really like go in there and get those that good basics done for our students, it is going to be slightly easier for them. But it doesn't mean that they'll never be able to read if they get to grade three or four without those reading skills. But they do need the proper interventions. That's where I think as a school, um, like the school lens is lacking is where we're not having those proper interventions for those students to be able to, you know, um, give them the skills they need to be readers and writers when we do notice that, you know, in grade three, they're not quite there yet, or grade five, which was your case last year, like there needs to be a lot more um, education around that, I feel. Absolutely. Yes. And I think we're, we're slowly coming around to it. Um, and I'm seeing great progress, whether it's in an individual classroom or within a school division or even within a whole province that has said, you know, this is how we're moving forward. Um, the tricky thing, though, is that right brains, brains like the recent like neuroscience itself is a, a, a science that's very young, <laughs> right, because we've only started really learning about the brain and there's a big disconnect between what the science says like what's happening in the buildings and where the science and the learning discovery is happening and then relaying it to um, teachers right so that's where we're hoping to like bridge that gap is in in that middle um, and that's what our master's degree was is that in hopes that the gap will be bridged because we have the neuroscience, we're educators. So now let's try and mend those together. Um, so I, I think it's coming. It'll always be changing. And I think that's what we need to remember, right? We're dealing with humans that are ever evolving. So it's never going to be status quo. It's always going to be change and change is hard for everybody. Right. So 
Yeah. That's one of the things that I'm a little bit worried about because I'm hearing a lot about pendulum swings. Like, oh, it's a pendulum, the science of reading, the structured literacy in general, it's a pendulum swing. And then I'm hoping that what we're realizing is it's not, it's a pendulum swing. It's an, it's um, um, a growth in our understanding of the science and getting that communication of what that science is to educators and it is going to change like any science is going to change over time and as educators we have to keep learning and growing our practice and reflecting on our practice to reflect the science that is also being done as well and you know when we know better we do better and we just keep growing and learning and you know we we even scientists don't know everything yet and hopefully we get newer and better ways to teach students and we can just keep you know building our capacity to reach all students so that we can build you know classrooms full of readers and writers that you know are confident in their skills and that's exciting for me I get excited when I get to learn something new and I I hope that other educators feel the same Yeah, definitely. And you know, it's so funny, you brought up the pendulum swing. So I've been um, close acquaintance with um, a researcher at the University of Lethbridge, who, for the past 30 years has been studying literacy. And I remember learning from her in my undergrad 16 years ago, that teaching reading is doing all of it from phonological awareness all the way to comprehension. And it's not doing it one at a time. It's doing it all together, mixing it and jambling it up. And that has been her message for the past 16 years, always, every time I've spoken to her. And that's the message that she's been relaying. But again, it goes back to that Howard Gardner, right? Is these corporations Mm -hmm. want to make money so they take what they want from the research and they make these beautiful programs right and then they sell it to school divisions and school divisions you know because that's we trust the people that come up with these programs this is this is the way right Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we do it and then we realize oh actually no this is not the way and then instead of going to the middle right we go all the way like the pendulum so we go all the way to the left And then we do that for a bit. And then we realize, no, actually, that's not the way. And then we swing back and forth instead of just being in the middle all the time. And the middle is what Dr. Robin Bright has been telling me for years is you got to teach all of it, all of it at the same time. (laughs) And this is where. I I did a, a podcast series on our new Ontario language curriculum. Yes, I heard that you guys and, got it. Yes, and it's very exciting and it's amazing. And everybody is looking for the program that is going to help them teach all of these yeah. skills. And my main message, and I hope it came across in those two podcast episodes, was it's not going to be a program. Okay. It's going to be your learning as an educator and your understanding of how students learn language skills that is going to be the best bang for your buck. Like don't, don't go out there and buy Hegarty. Don't go out there and buy you fly instead invest that time in understanding the science behind those programs. So whatever program your school board throws at you in the future or whatever new program comes out, you can evaluate it based on your understanding of the science and use it to benefit the students instead of just like, um, having another program that you have to follow. And so I think that that's my biggest messaging about all of this is that, you know, 
we all have these misconceptions about how students learn and how built brains are built and all those things. And so continuing to have, you know, professional development and reading books and listening to experts in their fields is really important. So I really appreciate that you came on and you were able to share some of these with us. And I'm hoping that if anybody's listening and any of these things, any of these myths rang true to you, like they're, you're out, you're going to go out there and you know, start building your knowledge around these things. Because like I said, throughout this podcast episode, I also believed all of these things. Like, these are just things that as a society, we've just been, it has been perpetuated for us. Yeah, absolutely. And like I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, we were a cohort of 20 studying neuroscience. And we had already done um, a few, one neuroscience class with our neuroscience at neuroscientists at the University of Lethbridge. And most of us, answered some of these questions wrong when we took the quiz of um, the 32. And if you want to like take a deep dive into it, it's actually an article and the article is called Dispelling the Myth, Training in Education or Neuroscience Decreases but Does Not Eliminate Beliefs in Neuromyths. Um, And it's a a long article, but at the end, end of the article are the 32 neuromyths. So you can even, you know, test yourself to see um, where you stand on these neuromyths, um, just, you know, just to know, to be aware of it. Um, yeah. To put you on the spot and you don't have to give me the list right now. I can always put in the show notes, but do you have any resources that you recommend to educators, um, to start building their understanding around neuroscience and how brains learn? I know we already mentioned multiple uh, teaching to diversity by Jennifer Cates, Katz. Cats. Yeah. Cats or Kate. I think it's cats. Um, oh my gosh. I have a whole list um, <laughs> you know where I'm going, you know, where I'm going to bring you. So um, the neuroscientist that we work with at the University of Lethbridge, um, she is amazing. Her name is Dr. Robin Gibb. And she, um, I cannot speak highly enough of her, um, but she started this building brains together. And Um, it's brain education for parents and teachers and educators and anybody who actually interacts with other humans, (laughs) which is all of us. Um, and also, um, and also, um, games. So you're mentioning, you know, learning through play in kindergarten is huge in, out in Ontario. And I hope it becomes big here in Alberta because it's so, so important, but she has a preschool program that, um, is learning is building executive functions, which we didn't get into today, but I'll gladly come talk your ear off about that one other day, if you'd like. Um, but it's all these games that you play with students, pre-K, kindergarten, even in, I've done it in grade one, and it builds their executive function. Um, it's research-based. They've done a pre-test and a post-test, and the results are fantastic. Um, but what they also have on their website, so, and this is all free resources, um, what they have on their website is courses. And they have three courses right now. And they're not long courses, they're like an hour courses, but it's like introduction to neuroscience and how the brain learns. And I tell everybody I know to take these courses. So I think that is the one thing I will um, send you to. 
Um, I'm hoping to get my staff this year, even though they're in middle school, to take these courses because it really gives you the basis of brain function and how brains learn and what's so important um, to learning, which we didn't really talk about, but is relationships, right? Relationships, relationship, relationships. Well, that's the Gene Clinton Love Builds Brains books. That's like where where that all comes from, those relationships that start at birth and then how as they grow older, those relationships are so important. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you're, if a brain is not in learning mode, you can, you know, do all the curriculum you want, Mm -hmm. but it's not going to learn. Um, Right. So that's why the relationship is so important. And, you know, that's another topic we can spend (laughs) hours on as well. Um, As you can see, I, I am brain obsessed, Um, but yes, I will uh, definitely, definitely, definitely um, encourage you to doing the building brains free online courses. Um, There are three of them and they're meant to not be very time consuming. um, And they pack a lot of knowledge and this is done by a neuroscientist that has been studying neuroscience since the seventies. So this is research based. This is the newest research and it is things that have been done by educators that have been proven to be successful. And now they're just sharing kind of that knowledge with everybody. There is another course. Oh my gosh, I'm completely blanking on the name, but it's from Alberta as well. The Alberta Family Wellness Institute. Yes. Oh, that course is also amazing. But But that course is very long. Yes, I took it. It took me a good, I'm going to say like six to seven months to work through it. It's free as well as like it was free when I did. I'm assuming it's still free. Is it brain works? No, like this is my brain not working on anything. It is. I actually had to do it for, it was one of their pre the requirements for one of my neuroscience classes. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a great free course. I will put it in the show notes. I'll put everything in the show notes. I always say, but um, it does take a long time to do it and it really dives deeper. So if you take those three free courses from Dr. Robin Gibb, which I'm very excited. It's on my list of things to do now. um, And you become brain obsessed, like we are, then going and you want to take it to the next step that might be a good next step for people because again you know free professional development who is not who's going to turn that down so that's another one that I've talked about in the past and that has that really um, deepened my understanding of how the brain works yes that yeah it's called brain story brain story oh I was so close with brain works (laughs) yeah brain story Alberta family services I believe is the one that did it and oh yeah that is like cream of the crop uh, course that is free that talks about everything brain related. Like it is, yeah, it is amazing, but it's very time consuming. So I always encourage my uh, teachers and staff to start with these building brain ones because they're meant to be not, you know, 20 hours of work, but a few hours here and there. Um, but yes, that brain story was phenomenal. Yeah, definitely. So there's lots of different resources for educators that are listening on the podcast and want to learn more about busting neuromyths and understanding uh, how the brain works. I'm going to put everything in the show notes for you. Make sure you go follow Veronica on Instagram at Madame Doyle. It's Madame underscore Doyle, right? D-O-Y-L-E. I Again, you will be linked in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all this amazing knowledge. 
now I just want to go learn more about the brain. (laughs) This just like sparked my interest all over again in it. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise. Oh, thank you so much for having me now. I'm all giddy and now I want to continue doing all of this. (laughs) So amazing. And yeah, go follow her on Instagram. I'm sure you'll be sharing your adventure as an assistant principal coming up. I'm so excited for you. And I'm excited for your staff, actually. More excited for them because they get to learn from your expertise and get all of your knowledge as well. So that's really exciting. And yeah, I'm looking forward to getting more resources and learning more from you as well. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And I'll gladly come back. If there's anything you want to talk about more brain, I'm all for it. (laughs) Executive functioning is a big one at our school right now. They're doing a book club this year. Well, I think they started it last year and they're continuing it into this year, all about executive functioning because, oh, I I could talk about this forever. But the the problems that we're seeing is that not only do the students not have the executive functioning skills, they don't have them because their families, like their parents, their caregivers don't have the skills. So it's kind of like, how do we bring that back into our school so that we can teach those skills? So it's a really interesting topic. Yeah, definitely is. That's actually what I did my final project on for my master's. So I could talk for hours. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Are you as excited now as I am about learning more about how the brain functions after listening to Veronica speak about all of the things that she has learned about neuroscience? Because I just want to take all of the classes and read all of the books that she has recommended. I will link everything in the show notes for you in case you are looking for them. The free courses look fantastic. I've had a chance to go and take a look at them and the books that she has recommended also look amazing. So everything is there for you. I hope you check it out. If you have any questions, you can either reach out to me or for you can reach out to Veronica over at Madame underscore Doyle over on her Instagram. Uh, yeah, that I just love these types of conversations and getting to talk to educators from like from everywhere and you know learn from their expertise and their experiences and uh, I'm just so thankful that you know people continue to want to come on the podcast and chat with me about these things and so thank you so much for joining me for this week's podcast episode make sure that you are following me on whatever podcasting platform you're listening to me on so that you know whenever I put out new episodes, which is usually every Tuesday. I want to thank you so much for joining me and uh, I hope you have a great day. Thank you.